to look at our Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we're going to be um, looking at Christ our Mediator, uh, Chapter 8 of our Confession, and Joe uh, is going to pop that up on the screen in just a moment. And it is um, a wonderful document to go through. Of course, we do recognise and we stress every time we talk about it that it's not the Bible, uh, so we're not... Uh, using it as some sort of authority that binds our conscience. But we are using it as a, an attempt, and I think probably man's best attempt, to summarise the leading doctrines of Scripture. Um, and we do need that. Uh, we need uh, pastors to preach to us, to interpret to us. We need theologians to teach us, explain things to us. And we need books to read, and these are very, very helpful to us. And so this is a, a summary of the leading doctrines of scripture Uh, and we're up to chapter 8 of that and we'll go through that in our Bible study this morning. Let's pray as we open God's word and as we consider his truth. Almighty God, we do ask for special grace to be bestowed to us this morning as we look at this precious subject and the most precious one, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ that great mediator through whom we are able to stand in your grace and in your presence, through whom we can receive forgiveness and justification, and through whom we can look forward to an eternity of joy, free from sinning in your presence. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to glorify Christ Jesus this morning as we think about him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, so I'm not sure how far we're going to get this morning. Uh, Last week we talked about the first paragraph of this chapter. Um, The way the uh, chapters work is they're not long chapters like you'd have in a novel or something like that. They're usually just one page, maybe maybe two pages, uh, made up of several paragraphs. So this one is actually one of the longest chapters in the Confession. It has ten paragraphs. And I'm hoping to finish it off next week, uh, Lord willing. Last week we only did paragraph one. uh, So I'm hoping to get to paragraph five today. And as I say that, I'm aware that that probably isn't going to happen. But we'll give it a go. So let me just read to you paragraph two. And it gives us a summary of the person of Christ Jesus. It says, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, The brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, The Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. So the two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion, composition or sorry, without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Now, that is a glorious and jam-packed 
paragraph. Uh, it says a great deal, and it needs to say a great deal because there's a great deal that needs to be said. You know, we are not to give a... It's really hard to give a simple answer to the question of who Jesus is. You can try, but it is uh, a, a very difficult thing to do. Let me just read to you a paragraph from Sam Waldron. Um, in fact, let me just introduce a couple of books to you before we start. So this is uh, called uh, A Modern Exposition of the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Okay? That's by Sam Waldron. Uh, that's a very, very helpful um, book. And this is a brand new book that's come out just, I think, last year. Uh, it's called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader by uh, Jim Renihan. Um, now, why it's called To the Judicial and Impartial Reader is because that's, uh, that's the beginning of the, the letter that, is, that, was accompanied, that accompanied the Second London Baptist Confession. The, the writers, at the beginning of their letter, addressed the audience that way. So he decided to use that as his title. And that's a commentary on the 1689, with a great deal uh, more detail than Sam Waldron's one. So I'll just let you know that those exist if you're looking for any help in understanding this. But let me just read this from Sam Waldron. The doctrine of the person of Christ demands the attention of the church and demanded the attention of the church for its first eight centuries. This shows how important it is for, Christ, for the Christian church. One reason it required such a long time for the church to formulate clearly uh, the doctrine of Christ's person is that it is one of the mysteries of the faith. Now that's an important word. A Christian may not give a simple answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? He must say that he is God. He must not only say that, he must also say that he is man. But he must not only say that Christ is God and man. He must say that he is God and man in two distinct natures, yet only one person. That is the mystery. Now that is uh, quite a profound mystery and one that is worth uh, delving into in some, uh, in some detail. So that's really what I'm hoping to do with you this morning is deal with that, that question, with that mystery, and we'll see how we get along. Now, a quick uh, comment on the word mystery. Okay? Mystery is an important word within Christian theology, uh, but it is one that I think people are hesitant to say, because it sounds like an excuse. Right? If something is hard, or if something is complicated, or if something is uh, contradictory, or there is some major tension involved, then we say, oh, well, it's a mystery. And people have used that as a way of sort of escaping from criticism or whatever it is. That's not the right way to use the word mystery. The right way to use the word mystery is to, un is to use it to refer to something that is perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical, that isn't in conflict or in, or in contradiction, but which has not been fully explained to us. That's what a mystery is. Okay? A mystery is something that finds its full explanation in the mind of God only. It is explainable. It is explainable, but in the mind of God only. Uh, it, it shouldn't be hard for us to recognize that our minds are not as big as God's mind. Uh, that our minds cannot cope with uh, and have, have not been instructed in all of the things that, the, that God's mind contains. We are very much like the goldfish swimming around in the water. Uh, if you were to have an interview with a goldfish and ask him about people what they would say about people would be very, very limited. 
right? A goldfish does not know much, maybe not anything, really about what it is like to live as a person. In the same way, a person does not really know what it is like to be God, to live as God, to know as God knows, and to act as God acts. There are so many things that we say about God which actually have a deep mystery within them. You know, we talk about God being eternal, but what does that mean? Does it just mean that he's existed through an eternity of time? No, that's not what it means. Because that's actually a contradiction, believe it or not. How do you exist through an eternity of time? How long does it take? How long does it take to exist through an eternity of time? Can you tell me? Can you? Can you exist through an eternity of time? No, you can't exist through an eternity of time. And eternity is literally endless. So if you have managed to exist through it, it's not endless. You see what I'm saying? So to simply say God is uh, existing through an eternity of time is, is not sufficient. What we're really saying is God is beyond time. God is in some uh, experiential place that is really beyond the, the space-time uh, um, structure that we experience and we understand. So it's a mystery. But it's a mystery that we recognise must be. Uh, because something has to have existed outside of time in order to start time. You see? There's a mystery there. It's explainable, it's logical, but it's beyond what we have been told. And it's possibly well beyond our capacity to understand. So that is what we mean when we're talking about mystery. It's not an excuse, and it is not a, a way of getting out of things. In fact, the main purpose for the word mystery is to invoke worship. That's the main reason to speak about mystery. To speak about realities that are real and true, but which are so far beyond our words and our concepts and our ability to understand. And that is a wonderful thing to say about God. A true thing to say about God. And so we ought to, when thinking about the divine and the human nature and how they um, are united in one person, be led ultimately to worship, not to confusion. And it's interesting, it's the, it's the heresies of Christology, the ones that have... Uh, either downplayed the divinity of Christ or downplayed the humanity of Christ or mixed and merged them in some strange way, they're the ones who don't like mystery. They're the ones who are trying to get rid of the mystery by explaining it more fully. And yet orthodox and biblical Christianity rejects that and says, no, no, we will hold on to the mystery, not because we need an excuse, but because God is worth worshipping, because he is beyond the categories and the concepts that we talk about. And everything that he says about himself and reveals about himself is already a condescension to our level of stupidity. Amen? Very good. So let's talk about then what scripture would tell us about the deity of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> this is an important uh, subject to delve into and I'd love you to have your Bible with you and I'm going to ask you to open some passages together with me. So could someone read for me John 8 and verse... 58, that'll kick us off. John 8, 58, and then somebody else could have a finger in John 10, verse 30, and somebody else could have a finger in John 14, and verse 11. Would someone be willing to... This is so... John 8, and verse 58, is the, is the classic text from Jesus' own mouth about his divinity. Sam, let's hear it. Oh, sorry. The verse before that. So the Jews said to him, You are not 
So, this is uh, a, a, an argument that Jesus is having, uh, and he's talking about a number of different things. And then he makes this grand statement. Uh, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that is a claim to divinity. Okay? That is not him simply saying, before Abraham existed, I existed. There would be another way to say that. In this text, he is saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what do, you think, what do you think he means by I am? What is that referring to? This is exactly what's happening. So he's not just claiming that he existed before Abraham did, which would be a massive claim, by the way. You know, a human being saying, oh yeah, I existed before Abraham. That, that's, that's basically divinity already. But he's saying more than that. He's saying that I am the I am of the Old Testament. You know, when Moses asked who God was at the burning bush, he says, what's your name? Because he's, God's going to send him to Pharaoh. And he says, what shall I say? Who shall I say is sending me? And God says, I am. Tell him that I am is sending you. And then I am is actually the basis for the name that is given to God throughout the Old Testament, the name Yahweh. That is the basis of that is I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was I am, he's saying I am the God of the Old Testament. Which is why they what? They picked up stones to throw at him. They recognised he was saying something that if it isn't true, it is blasphemy of the highest order. Okay. So there's the classic statement from, God, from Jesus' own lips about his eternal existence and his, his deity and identity with God of the Old Testament. Okay, now beyond that, there are really three kinds of passages in the, Old Te- uh, in the Bible uh, to do with Jesus' deity. So first of all, there is an association between Jesus and God. There's verses to do with that. So can I have John 10 and verse 30? Does somebody have that for me? I and the Father are one. Okay. Then we've got John 14 and verse 11. Before me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, for else. Believe on the part of the words themselves. Amen. So these texts that, that are drawing an association between Jesus and God, which is un, unprecedented and unparalleled. It is a, a phenomenal statement he's making from which we can draw uh, the truth of his divinity. Okay, so uh, th- there's, a, there's a set of passages like that. Uh, another set of passages which we draw his identity from is the places in the New Testament that identify him with the God of the Old Testament explicitly. Okay, so for example, can we have Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10? Would someone be willing to read, read that for us and maybe give us a bit of the context, like give us a, a couple of verses beforehand? Hebrews chapter 1. I'll get there with you. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of 
Amen. So here we go in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. The, the writer of Hebrews is trying to demonstrate the, um, the supremacy of the Son above the angels. That's the, that's the point. He's trying to say Jesus is more important than an angel. By the way, if you're more important than an angel, what are you? <laughs> right, what's more Is there an in-between stage between angel and God? No. If you're more important than the angels, you are God. Okay. So this is the, this is the argument being used. And then... Um, it says here in verse 8, uh, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, well, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then drop down to verse 10. And it also says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens, uh, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now that's a quotation from Psalm 102. A quotation from Psalm 102 referring to who? God, referring to Yahweh. And the writer of Hebrews is saying this is actually talking about Jesus, right? Because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Amen. Okay, another passage, Romans 10 and verse 13. Could we have someone read Romans 10 and verse 13? So we read that and we think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when it says Lord, who's it talking about? It's talking about Jesus, right? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's actually a quotation from the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. And the time will come where those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a direct quote. Right? So you've got a, uh, these passages scattered through the New Testament, which are essentially Old Testament quotations referring to God, and they are being applied to Jesus Christ. Uh, another one would be in First um, uh, Peter two three. You don't have to uh, go there, um, but it's talking about uh, Jesus Christ and how He saves, and it says, uh, "If in fact you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good," right? Now that's a quotation from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet Peter uses it to refer to Jesus. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord Jesus is good? Right. So there's a host of passages like this scattered through the Old Testament. Okay, a third set of passages, and this will be the last one we mention and talk about, are those wonderful passages through the New Testament that explicitly say that Jesus is God. Okay? So if we're in any doubt so far, we've still got a whole grouping of passages that say, and he is God. Okay? Now, not all of them come from the lips of Jesus, which is the problem that Muslims have with Christians. They say, Jesus never said he was God. It's like, well, in some ways that question is irrelevant. The, the Bible says Jesus is God. And even the place where we would go to, John chapter 8, where Jesus does say that he's God, in many ways, you could say, well, that could be John just sort of making it up or putting words in Jesus' mouth and so on. So we're still relying on John. And we're relying on John for, all of the, for many of the other verses to do with Jesus' deity. But Jesus did say, did say he is God. But the rest of the New Testament affirms that with very explicit statements as well. So John chapter 1 and verse 1. We know this one well. In the beginning was God. Oh, sorry, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. 
Can we go to uh, Romans 9 and verse 5? Romans 9 and verse 5, somebody. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So a clear statement that Jesus is God. Romans 9, verse 5. And of course, I did just read one as well. Hebrews 1 and verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, I had uh, a lot of fun actually looking at the, um, the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible, just checking how they translate all of these verses. And some of them were spectacular. I was like, oh, well, I see what you've done there. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I would, I would encourage you to uh, actually do that because it is quite interesting to see just how much manipulation has to go on uh, with the text of Scripture to get these verses to not say Jesus is God, right? It, it, it's sort of a stand on your head and look sideways and hold your tongue in just the right way to get it to work type stuff. So Jesus is God. Jesus is also fully human. Now, this is much easier to prove, right? Uh, I don't think anybody, or not many actually, has it, have ever really doubted this. Though there have been some people who came to believe that Jesus is God and then thought, well, if he's God, he can't really be fully human, right? That, that's impossible. So maybe he just appeared to be human. Maybe he just took on a human appearance, like a sort of an, an angelic form, but wasn't really human in the full sense. Uh, maybe you could go up to him and touch him like he had a body, but it was just like a, it was, it was smoke and mirrors. It wasn't a real human body. And Christian um, theology and Christian history and the Bible itself, most importantly, has rejected that fully uh, for a number of different reasons. Apart from the fact that the Bible identifies him as man, as a man, it's also very important that he was a man, right? Because he came to be the second Adam, right? Adam represented humanity by being a human, right? Jesus came to be the second Adam to represent his people by being a human. It's very important that a human live the life that we should have lived and didn't, to live in obedience to the law so that he can give us his record of righteousness, and to die a substitutionary death on the cross as a human for other humans. It is very important that he was a human being. Uh, but, in thinking about the fact that he was human, we need to be careful to go all the way into, the, uh, into affirming that he really did have a human nature and not stop short of a few important things. So let me, let me test your orthodoxy at this point. Okay, you ready? Did Jesus have a human soul? Before you answer, it could be conceivably argued that the eternal Son of God was the replacement for Jesus' human soul. That he had a human personality and all that stuff, human body and so on, but that his inner life, his soul, his spirit, was actually just the Son of God. Did Jesus have a human soul? What's your answer? 
He was fully human. Could you be fully human and not have a human soul? No. Jesus had a human soul. Now my soul is troubled, he says. He speaks about his soul. Okay, next question. Did Jesus have a human mind? Or was his mind actually the mind of the Son of God only? Can you be fully human and not have a human mind? No. You must have a human mind. So Jesus has God's mind and a human mind. Okay? Working, not blendedly together, but working as two wills, as two attributes, as two elements of his person. Now, there's mystery in that. But there is a, a truth that needs to be affirmed. The mind of God, being infinite and being all-knowing, so that's the thing, the mind of God is all-knowing, the mind of the man is not all-knowing. How could you be a, a human being and by necessity have uh, omniscience? When Jesus speaks of uh, not knowing the day or the hour, he's speaking according to his human mind, his human nature. Okay, But the human and the divine are subsisting in the same person. Does Jesus have one will or two wills? I'm not going to answer this one. Someone can answer it. Be brave. Does Jesus have one will or two wills? One? Who says one? Who says two? Hands up. Who says one? The will of Jesus. Who says two? Who didn't vote? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I have made this uh, mistake uh, for many, many years of my uh, Christian life and even as a pastor. The traditional Christian position is that Jesus had two wills. That Jesus had two wills and not one will. The reason being is because will is attached to nature, not person. Will is a function of... We often think of will and willing for things to take place as a function of person. But in Christian theology, it is a function of nature. It is an attribute of a person's nature. Okay? And when we're talking about nature, we're talking about two things. The divine nature and the human nature. You see? This is why I think uh, Jesus can say things like, not my will but yours be done. Now that's, that's a hard thing to say if, the, if the, Jesus only has one will and it is the divine will. It would be odd to say, given the fact that there is only one divine will. See, here's another question for you. Are there three wills in the Trinity or one will? I'm not going to make you vote this time. But the answer actually is, because will is attached to nature and not person, there is one will. Are you confused? There is one will in the Trinity because there is one nature. There are two wills in the person of Jesus because there are two natures. You following? Okay. So when he says, Pastor, not my will, but Yeah. Speaking according to his human will. 
Because according to his human will, he was looking for another option. He's looking down the barrel of the crucifixion and he's saying, if, if this cup could pass from me, may it be so. And he's, in, in that way, he's kind of relating to our humanity in the most profound sense. And yet demonstrating his perfect obedience as the representative human being for all people by submitting his will to the will of God. Right? See, when he said that, I'm sorry. When he said that, he was, he was in the, the person, right? Mm. Not in the, in the nature. The person of Christ. So, man, yeah. he was speaking, speaking that. So this is, the, this is the profound thing. When, when Jesus does things, he does things as the person who is both God and man. But his ability to do things is by virtue of his nature, which is twofold. So his ability to get tired is based on his nature as a human. His ability to uh, represent us as humans is based on his nature as a human. His ability to have infinite value and be worthy of worship is by virtue of his divine nature. Do you see? But he is one person. See, this is the next trick. It's very easy now, if you've got two natures, two wills, two minds, to then think, well, really, we're talking about two people. We're talking about two persons that are kind of working together here. Are we? No. When we're talking about person, we're talking about one. Jesus was one person. He was the eternal son of God. Amazing. And yet the eternal son of God, that person, has two natures. See, what is so crucial here when talking about the Trinity and when talking about the nature of Christ is we have to have a clear distinction between person and nature. Nature is attributes. Nature is stuff you can say about the being. Person is agency. Person is the means through which the, the, the one who possesses and expresses the nature. Do you see? This is the key difference. Now, this is difficult because we are so used to talking about persons with, resp with respect to attributes. Like if I asked you to define what a person is in human terms, what would you say? You would immediately go to attributes. You would say, well, a person is uh, someone who has a conscience. You might say that. Or a person is someone who has moral reasoning. Or a person is someone who is a thinking mind. But all of that is attributes. Those are attributes. When talking about God, a person is an agent through who possesses and expresses attributes. And in God there is one being, one set of attributes, and three agents through who possess and express those attributes. Important, right? When it comes to Christ Jesus, we are talking about one person, one agent, who possesses and expresses two natures, two sets of attributes, a divine set and a human set. You, will, you with me? Okay. See, it's actually simpler than you thought, but you've got to have these categories and you've got to have these distinctions in your mind. Okay. But I said to someone the other day who was asking me about the Trinity, and I said, look, here's all you need to know about the Trinity. The Father is your Father. The Son is your Saviour. The Spirit is indwelling within you, perfecting you and turning you into, uh, transforming you into the nature of the Son. 
That's what you need to know about the Trinity. You don't need to know about these mysterious things, person and nature and so on. Though they are interesting to think about. You follow me? Any questions? I'm taking from the fact there's no questions that everybody is right up there now. We've got it. We understand? Sorry? There's only one will in God, in the, in the Trinity. There is two wills in Jesus. Because will is attached to nature, not person. We understand? Okay, we've got it. Okay, well, in the time we have left, so um, I was hoping to get through uh, a lot more, but that's okay. Mystery is meant to lead to worship. And there is a glorious thing that we can uh, focus on here that leads to worship. Let's consider the benefits of the fact that Jesus Christ has two natures in the one person. Let's consider the benefits of the fact that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. For it is a glorious truth to ponder and a glorious truth to remind ourselves of. So what is one of the benefits to us of the fact that Jesus was human? We've talked about it a few times already this morning. Can you tell me? Oh yeah, that's a very good one. He's able to relate to us, right? So he's able to sympathise with our weakness. Now, um, the flip side of that, there is a benefit to the fact that he isn't only human. So he's able to relate to us and sympathise to us with us, but the fact that he's also God means that he is sovereign over our problems. That's good, isn't it? I mean, if you're suffering and you're in trial and tribulation, do you want a God who simply suffers with you? Now, it's nice to know that there is a God who, is, who can come alongside and, and empathise and uh, have a sense of fellowship with you in your sufferings. But if that's all God is, then you're still in a whole lot of strife. You also need a God who is sovereign over these things who will bring you through these things, who has a perfect plan for these things. Amen? Okay, what's another benefit of him being a human or him being God? He can take our place place on the cross. Okay, he can take our place. What is the, um, uh, the benefit of him being God in that scenario? Because there is a benefit. So he can take our place as a human... The benefit of him being God is that his sacrifice is of infinite value. Infinite value. Because he is in fact God. So an infinite punishment due to humans for sin can only be satisfied by an infinity of punishment in hell or a punishment that is of infinite value on the cross. So the fact that he is divine and human in his representation of you is also very important. What's another um, Benefit. He's coming back. He's coming back. That is a wonderful, wonderful benefit. What about the fact that he is worthy of worship? It is a marvellous thing. He's able to make us one with God. Amen. That's right. If he was just man, then he would be one with us, but he wouldn't be able to make us one with God. And if he was just God... He would be one with God, but would he be able? But would he be one with us? You see, there is a unity between humanity and God, which is now forever, which will never be broken, 
by virtue of the fact that the second person of the Trinity is now man and God. Isn't that incredible? The second person of the Trinity is now God and man. Are you worshipping? Are you in awe of what God has done? This is absolutely phenomenal. Okay, any other questions? Or thoughts or comments? Okay, let me just do... um, I don't think we have time to do another paragraph. Um, I'm just going to take more than two weeks to do this chapter. But let me just give you another couple of questions to test your orthodoxy. Okay, We we had fun with this already, and I'm sorry for those who uh, maybe... Uh, came off second best, but uh, the um, the I've got a couple of questions. Okay, Jesus Christ is he omnipotent? Omnipotence means all powerful. Is Jesus omnipotent? Who says yes? Who says no? No one says no. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes as well. Ha ha! In what sense is it yes? Yeah, by virtue of his divine nature, when his divine nature is in operation, it is omnipotent. Uh, and his divine nature is always in operation. Uh, when his human nature is uh, being expressed through his person, his agency, it is not omnipotent. You understand? Okay, omniscience, all-knowing, same thing. He is omniscient, and he is also not omniscient. By virtue of the two natures, okay? When the, the divine nature is operating through the agency and person of the Son, and it is uh, omniscient. The human nature operating through the agency and person of the Son is not omniscient. So we're talking about the two natures. Remember, when we're talking about attributes, we are talking about nature, right? The person can have both. You see? Okay, last one. Omnipresence. Everywhere. Is Jesus everywhere? Who says yes? Who says no? We all agree. Jesus is everywhere and Jesus is not everywhere. Okay? Now, this is the sort of stuff that the Muslims just jump on. They say, oh, look, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're in contradiction and so on. And it does sound like a contradiction, but it is not a contradiction. Because when we talk about attributes, we're talking about nature. We're talking about the divine nature of Christ is omnipresent. It is everywhere. It was everywhere while Jesus was in the womb. It was everywhere when Jesus was walking around in Galilee. And it is everywhere now. The human nature of Jesus was not everywhere when it was in the womb of Mary. Where was it? It was in the womb of Mary. Uh, Where was it when it was walking around Galilee? It was walking around Galilee. Where is it now? Everywhere? No. It is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning from heaven. Do you see? But can you also feel the mystery in this? We're talking about two very different playing fields. One, a created playing field, the human nature, and one, an eternal one. One, a finite one, one, an infinite one. One, an everywhere everywhere thing, and one, a not-everywhere thing. One, an all-knowing thing, and the other, not an all-knowing thing. And yet there is a union between 
these two natures and the one person of Christ. And this is why the confession is very keen to say this. So that, this is the last uh, sentence, so that two whole, perfect, and yet distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without conversion, the human doesn't become divine, the divine does not become human. There's no conversion, they stay distinct. Without composition, it's not 50% of this, 50% of that. Without confusion, the two do not muddle, and so on. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Isn't that a nice, crisp, clear statement about all that we've just spoken about? Amen? Any thoughts or comments as we finish? He is the glorious saviour because he is glorious in every respect. Glorious in his divinity, most certainly. Glorious in his humanity, the perfect human being, sinless and so on. And because of that, he is able to be a glorious saviour and glorious mediator between man and God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do bow before your infinite wisdom and your infinite majesty in your plans and your purposes to send your son Jesus Christ into this world to take on flesh to be our representative. Father, there are things in this reality which are beyond our ability to understand. We are like goldfish that swim around in the water not even knowing what water is, not even knowing what air is, not knowing what people are. We are like that. We don't know what it is like to be eternal and infinite and omnipotent and omnipresent. We don't know these things. But we know that you are those things. And we know that you have united yourself mysteriously with the flesh of this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.